Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Uh, I'm your host, of course, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we're going to be starting things off here in just a moment on the Coach's Corner panel. We've got a couple of great uh, pros. One's with us here, and we're just waiting for the other one to chime in. Hopefully, he'll be here any moment. And then a little bit later on, my special guest is going to be uh, Nicole Weller. She's uh, both a member of the PGA of America and the LPGA's Teaching and Club uh, Professional Division. Uh, she'll be joining us a little bit later on, giving us an update uh, on what she's been doing up at Pinehurst um, and and beyond. So we'll see what's cooking with her. She's been a uh, pretty regular every season she comes on the show. And, and actually, uh, for those of you that have been tuning in uh, since the beginning, you may recall uh, that Nicole was the um, very first guest I had on Golf Talk Live uh, back 10 years ago. It's hard to believe, but uh, I've been doing this. You've been listening to me, actually, for 10 years. So, all right, I'm going to introduce the panel and then uh, we will uh, get the guys uh, ready to go. And as I said, we'll, uh, we've got one of them here, but uh, we'll see uh, how things go with, with number two. Uh, on the panel tonight is uh, going to be John Hughes. He's a PGA Master Professional and the Honorary President, uh, President excuse me, of the North Florida PGA Section. Uh, he was also the recipient of the 2013 PGA of America's Horton Smith Award. Uh, he's also a Senior Editor and Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 Instructor and has been a part of the Golf Tips advisory staff. Also uh, joining the panel is uh, my good buddy Clint Wright. He's a 30-plus year member of the PGA and one of the partners at TGM Golf. TGM Golf, of course, uh, is a big proponent of the R3 approach, and he's considered among uh, the best covering the short game and a favorite guest here on Coach's Corner. And Clint is with me now. So, Clint, welcome. Hey, Ted. Glad to be here. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, I've, yep. we're going to wait and see what happens with John. Hopefully he's going to be sure. a, a, sh a show up. But um, I thought what we do is, and I'm going to ask you this while we, while we wait a few minutes for him uh, before we get into no uh, our discussion. Um, I'm going to be heading up actually not next week, but the week at, well, actually next Friday, um, so a week tomorrow. Uh, I'm actually going to be heading up to Pinehurst. I got invited to go up, and I'm going to be up there for a few days and uh, going to be playing some golf, uh, pretty tight schedule, but I'm going to be playing uh, four days, four rounds of golf, actually one on the, on the, uh, the cradle, which is the short course, and then three on right. uh, some of the longer courses. So I'm going to ask you, Clint, I'm sure you could uh, probably throw me a little advice. What advice have you got for me up there? <laughs> I don't, I've, you know, been to Pinehurst a couple of times, but not that familiar with it, but 
There's some obviously great golf up there. Tobacco Road's a great golf course. All the Pinehurst facilities are outstanding. Yeah. Uh, I don't know uh, what you got scheduled to play, but I think from what I've heard, if you play the cradle, you're going to be a, uh, have a uh, quite a few friends with you. Um, <laughs> very popular. Yeah. Um, right. But um, outside of that, I mean, it's hard to go wrong up there. You know, you. you um, Mid Pines, you know, what What more can you say about Peggy Kurt Bell and the job they've done there for years and, and um, uh, but all the Pinehurst courses. But if you get an opportunity, go ahead and pay the big bucks and play Pinehurst number two. Get it over with. That's what I'm playing. Uh, yeah, I'm playing that. I'm, I'm playing, um, actually on the Saturday I play the Cradle. On uh, Sunday I play number two. On Monday, I play number four, and I think either seven or nine, I can't remember, on the Tuesday morning, and then I head home. So I'm up there for a few days, going to get uh, some golf. So I'm warming up yeah. with the cradle, of course, to uh, work on a little of the shorter game. Um, but, um, yeah, I've never I've never been to uh, to Pinehurst, and uh, I'm yeah, looking forward to it. You'll have a good it. time. I've, I mean, two and four are a challenge. I think you'll have a lot of fun on seven, if that's the one you play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to play uh, playing all three of them. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think the the last one is either seven or nine. I can't remember. I have to look at the itinerary. But right. uh, yeah, I'm uh, going up on on behalf of Golf Tips Magazine and going to go up oh, and uh, just do a thing. So yeah, I'm looking Pine, forward to it. So Pinehurst, yeah, Pinehurst is like Augusta. You need to go once in a life at least to, to say you've been to Pinehurst. It's uh, it's quite a place. Yeah, and um, you know I'm looking forward to it, um, to be honest. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best. You know, I, I, what's really interesting. I mean, obviously I've played for a long time as as you have, and I'm pretty confident in my game. But you know, when you haven't really played, you know, it's it's tough. You mentioned here just a few moments ago off air that you're playing a little bit more uh, than what you probably had for a few years because you were so busy teaching, and now that you're sort of semi-retired. I'm I'm calling you semi-retired because you're not actually retired. You think yeah, you are, but you're actually, yeah. you're actually not. Yeah. They've, they've pulled you out of the out of retirement to, to help out in that, which is good. But, yeah. um, you know, you've managed yeah, to play. Good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm going to I'm, – I'm, I remember all of the tips that you've given over the years in Coach's Corner uh, on putting, so I'm going to be really focused on the short game overall. But uh, – I'm going to really focus on my putting, so uh, I think that's that's <laughs> going to be like, the If you're like me at Pine, if you're like me at Pinehurst, you're going to use your short game a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, get sure. get ready. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. So that's why I make sure I take good notes. When well, the one nice thing is I can go back and listen to all of the previously aired shows, and I can pick up the tips. Yeah, sure. Clint say lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand. Just, I, looking, I appreciate the confidence. I know. <laughs> and if not, I'll be I'll be cursing your name all the way home. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what all right. We're, to do, you know, I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> all right, we're gonna um, we're gonna move on a little bit. I'll keep an eye out for John. Sure. Uh, I suspect he's probably yeah, running no a little bit late on the lesson tee, and uh, mm-hmm. but uh, not to worry. So, um, what I thought we would talk about and and actually Cindy and I talked a little bit about this on our Tuesday morning broadcast this week and under uh, our no BS zone if you will is what we call it and this was really interesting I came across this I, I'm not the inventor of this so I'm not going to take credit where credit's not due um, but I came across the, an interesting 
blog post, if you will, uh, on Dave Stockton's all-time top 10 putting tips. And for those of you that aren't familiar with who Dave Stockton is, uh, in his prime in the early 70s, uh, Dave Stockton once uh, went some 950 holes without a three-putt, which is uh, pretty miraculous, to be honest. Um, still blessed with his revered putting game uh, that brought him 25 titles, including five majors. Uh, he now is a consultant for Taylor Made as well as a putting coach to tour stars uh, who have collectively notched 30 wins over the last year, including Roy McIlroy's uh, victory at the U.S. Open. So he's, um, you know, he's he's obviously somebody that really has dialed in on putting and has been a, you know, somebody that that really I think the a um, uh, lot of the PGA Tour players, even the younger ones coming up, I think. Respect. There's a lot of obviously short game gurus, if you will, in the game, but Dave, uh, being a tour member himself over the years, both on the regular and then on the Champions Tour, um, has really, you know, garnered a, a reputation over the years. So he's put together some of these things. So I thought we would talk a little bit about, and I'm going to get you to to sort of go on this first one here, obviously, uh, and that is uh, to consider groove technology. You know, there's a lot of changes. Um, and he talks about some things here, and of course, being with TaylorMade, he's talking about the Rosa uh, putters, about how they can improve at various levels with some of the technology that they have in that. But what I wanted to ask you, because I know that you're a big proponent of the short game, and particularly, I know you talk a lot about putting. What, if anything, do the grooves really matter on the putter? I mean, it, we're not hitting it in the air, we're not really, um, you know, is it really going to notice an improvement as a result of what what the grooves are on a putter face, you know, I I don't know whether the grooves matter that much, but I do know the process of milling the face mm-hmm. is probably going to get us a more consistent surface level wise than what it would be just a simple casted face. So you can take all the little maybe imperfections out of the out of the straightness or the flatness of the surface by the by the milling process. So I mm-hmm. think if anything, in my opinion, and it is very unscientific, is that the the things that the milled face putters do, it gets a pretty flat face with the loft angle the same all the way across the the putter face, um, but. You know, like I say, I'm not real sure whether the grooves actually do anything as far as the roll of the ball, other than the fact that the milling process gives us a perfectly consistent surface. Well, and he talks about here, the reason why I asked that is, and why I wanted to ask you that is, he talks about here how the the grooves on the face insert, for instance, and he's referring again to this particular brand of tailor-made putters, um, that they've shown through, I guess, testing to to infect the impact and roll characteristics, um, obviously differentiate from putter to putter, um, and they've obviously measured them in, in their labs. Um, and he says, as far as reducing the skidding and jumping of the golf ball uh, to give a, a pure roll. But I, I, I kind of, you know, and again, I'm not going to challenge him. I mean, he's obviously worked with, uh, uh, I'm sure, a lot of experts in, in the technical side of things. But I think a lot of it really has to do with your stroke, doesn't it? Well, certainly it does. I mean, the the thing of it is is that you can do all the testing in the world you want, and Mm -hmm. there will be most likely some very small differences. So if if I'm selling putter faces that are milled or got grooves, 
and I can determine there's just the slightest bit of difference, then mm-hmm. I'm going to promote that. Okay. Yeah. So the real question comes down is really what difference or improvement level with the average player out there does this do? And I would, without a doubt, it probably changes the characteristics. But to, to what extent? We're, we're not putting on a perfect surface. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. the grass has got grain and this and that. So, and, you know, I've seen studies where, you know, no matter how you hit it, the ball's going to roll end over end within a foot. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, so the question is, is does it make a valuable or a measurable difference for the average player? And it all comes down to, okay, he's going to get a little bit of improvement. I hate to say it, but how much are you going to pay for that? And is it worth the value and and what these different things do? Yeah, and and I I agree with that. I think for me, what I look for is how the ball reacts when when the stroke is done. Um, Because I've seen some putters with a lot of the new inserts, and it'll literally bounce off that putter face. And then oh, I've yeah. seen others where it's more of a dead hit. So I think it really depends. I mean, some people may prefer the the, the previous. Uh, I, I don't. If if I and I've tested a few different putters over the years, um, just for me personally. And if it you know if it's bouncing a foot off, um, and not even beginning to roll. If it's I mean, and obviously there's always going to be a little bit of a skid initially. But if it's I mean I've Certainly. seen some with some of these inserts, and I mean it, it's like it's. It's almost launching the, the ball, rocket. and I mean, I've barely even tapped yeah, it's a it. Rocket. Yeah, exactly. To me, yeah, I would find that to be a disadvantage. I mean, eventually, I think you know, with enough practice, you'd get used to it. But I would find it it would make it very difficult to be able to gauge um, and help with distance control because what's happening is, depending on on how you hit it, you know, one time if it's a little firmer, boom, it's going to spring off. If the next time it's a little softer putt, maybe not so much. So it's going to be, in my opinion, I think very difficult to gauge your distances because the putter, uh, the ball is going to react differently off that putter face. There's not a consistency um, in, in how it springs off or reacts yeah. uh, to that insert. And that's so, the thing that I – right, so go ahead. Yeah, well, so what, you, what I agree with you, what you're saying is, is that maybe obviously the type of material in the insert is more important than the grooves. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that comes down to is what's if you're playing your home course, and there there in Florida, Panama City, you're playing on Bermuda or Zoysia, you may mm-hmm. need a different inserted putter for that grass than what you would up here putting on bent grass. Yeah, you know. So your home course and the way the ball reacts on the surface once you hit it is how I would encourage you to try to figure out the best putter for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, tailor-made, ping, all of them have a variety of different types of putters in their in their lineup of product. So it's not like you got to pick one or the other, and we're not selling one or the other here. But it, it really comes right. down that if you re- want to spend some money, try to get two or three different models with different inserts and see which one gives you the best reaction for the surface you're playing on. Not the mm-hmm. surface that the tour players putting on, because we all know they're putting on a different surface than we do. Right. Um, you right. know, exactly. it's firmer, it's generally faster. So what works good for them 
may not necessarily work good for you when you're playing a, a little softer green that, that has zoysia or Bermuda grass that has a dramatically different characteristic role than, than bent grass or a really finely manicured, you know, tiff, you know, kind of a tiff eagle type, you know. So mm -hmm. you just have to look at the surface you're putting on and then go from there. Right. Yeah, and, and, and you're, you're exactly right. And, and I, I think, again, it comes down to a personal preference. But it's interesting, though, you know, obviously he's done some testing and that on behalf of uh, TaylorMade, yeah. and, and I think that's great. But, uh, again, you know, you have to look at the conditions. And if you're, if you're playing, you know, the same courses all the time, you're familiar, as you said, depending on the grass you're playing on, depending on the speed of the greens, um, some putters are going to perform better, perhaps, um, than, than others. So, you know, tour players obviously – you know, are, are changing all the time, and a lot of times they modify as they go uh, some of their equipment. So, uh, you know, we don't have that same luxury, uh, the average player out there. So I, I think it's just, it's interesting, and I, I wanted to have this discussion because, you know, putting is a very personal thing, I think, for a lot of people. Um, again, the look of the putter, the feel of the putter, that sort of thing. It's just kind of interesting, some of the, the notations. And I, I take it not as the gospel, so to speak, and again, no disrespect to, to right. Mr. Stockton, but, you know, I just wanted to uh, to sort of break that down. All right, um, we're going to bring my good friend, Mr. Hughes, on. He's uh, uh, here to join us now, so let me bring on uh, PJ Mass professional, John Hughes. Mr. Hughes, welcome hey, to the program. Jack. Sorry about me being tardy. I had to clean up some things with a client. All ready now. All right, yeah. sounds good. We'll say hello to Clint. Clint's on with you. Uh, Clint, John Hughes. Clint, hey, John. Thanks for thanks for filling in my uh, tardy gap there. Appreciate that. It's, it's no okay. We 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 got it under control. So what we're talking about, John, I'm going to just bring you up to speed, and then I'm going to throw a question your way. Is um, this was a, a conversation that Cindy Miller and I had this past Tuesday, and I wanted to expand a little bit more with you guys. And it was a, a top 10 putting tip list, if you will, that was presented by Dave Stockton. And it was something that I, I pulled off online on a blog. And I found it very interesting. And we were just talking about uh, sort of the groove technology, whether um, it, it's a consideration on the impact. Now, and we're not going to go because Clint's already uh, answered that. So I'm going to move on to the next one. And one of the other ones that he talks about is the left-hand, right-hand rolls. And we're going to talk about right-handed golfers, obviously for left, everything that you mention is going to be the opposite. But um, as an example, I'll give you just a brief idea of what he's talking about, and then I want to get your thoughts, whether you agree, disagree, or, um, and so forth. So for right-handed golfers, as we said, the right hand provides the power and the feel in the putting stroke. The left hand merely goes along for the ride. Do you agree with that statement? Um, and if so, uh, maybe you can explain a little bit more exactly what he's talking about there when he says it's, it's the power of the stroke and what the left hand's job, if you will, uh, on the grip. And uh, if not, uh, what are your thoughts? So if you're going to me, I'm ready, and thanks again, everybody, yes, John, for allowing me to be a little yeah, tardy. That's, <laughs> that's okay. So uh, thanks, Ted, again, for the opportunity. Clint, thanks for filling in the time. That was funny is, is so apropos. I was spending time with a client trying to clean up their putting, uh, prior to getting on, and this is exactly what I was explaining to the person. I explained it a little bit differently, and I somewhat agree with Mr. Stockton, but I'd say it a different way. Your right hand, for most people who are right-handed, 
deliver the putter. And what I mean by that is it's not only the power, it's the security of the face of the putter for most golfers, not necessarily all. When the left hand is just on there for the ride, you got to think of it this way. Where is it riding to? So the left hand can certainly get in the way of the direction the putter is heading towards, especially if the left hand gets over-dominant. The the example I'd give you is pulling a trailer versus pushing a trailer. As much as that right hand wants to be dominant, the bottom hand, and it's going to deliver the club, the steering of that is the pulling of that trailer with the left hand. Uh, the left hand's got to be a guide in that direction, somewhat clear the way, almost like you're in a wind tunnel and the left hand is is clearing the way for the right hand and the putter to make way. Uh, just some visual examples. It's a little more complicated than that. It's based on each individual and how they preference a lot of different things in their putting. But for the most part, is it the power? I wouldn't call it the power because I think a lot of people take that very black and white at face value. If they understand the word delivery and what delivery means, then that fits into that definition, and then it provides a more clear understanding of what the left hand should be doing for them regardless of their grip, regardless of their setup. Yeah, I think, you know, as I said, what he's really talking about here is is sort of defining what he sees the role of the hands play. And I think, again, um, you know, when, when Cindy and I talked about it on Tuesday, one of the things that she did is obviously she agrees um, primarily with what he's talking about here is she'll actually have a lot of her students do a one-handed putt drill and obviously with the right hand for right-handed golfers. Um, just to show you that you can putt simply with the one hand, but that the right hand actually does provide, as he puts it, the power uh, of the stroke. So the left hand is not essentially really going along for the ride, but as you said, it's help sort of clearing the way or steering through the putting stroke. So one hand does has one function, the other hand has another function. They work in unison, of course, um, but I think what he's trying to do is just to give you an idea, because a lot of times we'll see... Um, people will that are putting again right-handed will pull it uh, a lot with their left hand and either pull it offline uh, or provide too much power because they're kind of snatching it through the the slot, if you will. And I think that's what he's just trying to do is is define the role. So I think what you're saying is exactly right. I think he's just trying to break it down in what he sees as the uh, dominant roles for each of the hands. Um, but great answer though, John. Thank you. Uh, Clint, I'm going to come back to you for this one here, and this is really about reading the putt. And he he talks about, and again, I again, I just want to share what his thoughts are, get and then get your thoughts on this. Uh, he talks about for reading the putts is that he likes to split the putt into three equal parts, but it gives more a much more emphasis on the final third, uh, and that he's talking about the distance, of course, when the ball will be traveling much slower and be more uh, prone to movement from. Uh, even the smallest of slopes. So if it's a breaking putt, for instance, the last third of the putt is what he's suggesting is going to be uh, where the ball is greatly impacted with. So this is what he's trying to do is break it down. 
Um, give me your thoughts here. Do you agree with what he's stating here, number one, um, or in somewhat? And then give me your idea of when it comes to reading the green, really what you're trying to do. Well, yeah, I, I think he's absolutely correct that if, you know, let's say you got a 20-foot putt, in, in the first two-thirds of that, the ball's going to have enough speed to carry it through most slopes. You know, uh, so the ball's not going to begin to react to the slope until the initial speed slows down to where gravity kind of begins to pull it downhill versus the initial velocity of the putt overriding that, that pull. So he's right. The latter part of any putt is where the ball is going to break if it's beginning to slow. If you have your speed right or close to right, then that's when the ball is going to begin to react. So what I try to get, you know, the the better players, I mean, the, the beginning players and stuff, that they could just get proper speed and get the feel for the green. But as a person that, that's a little above average, you start getting them to read, you know, from a certain point, what's the ball going to do from here? So if it's going to be that last third where the ball begins to react, so where do I need my shot to be gets to that final third? Does it need to be two inches right of the hole at that point? So what I try to get people to do is to take and read that last third, but then pick a spot to putt to that I needed to be at. Mm-hmm. So at the end of that two, the, the first two-thirds of the putt, where does my ball need to be in order for that, the, you know, the, the three-footer or whatever it is of that putt that is going to react? So you're really kind of picking out what is going to react. You're reading that last third to try to find your starting point for the last third. Mm-hmm. And the responsibility of the first two-thirds is to get it to that particular spot. You know, um, you know it's interesting. So he's, I think he's right in, in that particular case. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting, you know, on, on Tuesday we um, had a, our special guest, of course, was Dottie Ardina, who was the uh, latest Epson Tour winner. Uh, she won the Copper Rock Championship up in Utah. And, you know, she sort of talked about something very similar here, um, basically what you just said. And the way she put it was, because I asked her the question, and it was based on some of this discussion, you know, what was one of the things that she noticed with a lot of amateur golfers that they seemed to have a difficulty understanding, what was sort of the part of putting that they seemed to struggle with the most. And she said with breaking putts, for the same reasons that you just identified, is they're looking at the hole. They're not looking. So in her case, her example was, you know, I pick a spot. If it's a breaking putt left or right, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm looking for the, the apex. I'm looking at where, at the apex right. of the slope. And that's where I'm putting through. That's where I'm aiming. I'm not aiming at the hole. What I want is I want the curvature of that slope to then feed it on that, as you said, that last third. And that's really, in a roundabout way, what Dave's talking about in his analogy as well, is he's looking at that in three parts. The first two is really he's gauging the speed of the putt and the direction of the putt. And then what he's doing is the last third is he's looking for that apex or that point in the putt where it's going to begin to start to take that slope and head towards the hole. And I think that's where a lot of amateurs uh, seem to fall short. And, John, I want to get you just to to throw some thoughts in here as well. Do you agree with with what Dottie had said and and obviously what Clint said, but um, that a lot of amateur golfers, when it comes to putting, 
this is an area that they really start, you know, straight three foot, four foot putts. I mean, that's pretty, pretty vanilla and pretty standard. But when it comes to breaking putts, this is where a lot of amateurs struggle is they don't, they're still looking at the hole. They're not looking at the true target, which is where the apex is in the slope. What are your thoughts here? Absolutely agree. Uh, I work with this not only with beginners, but very competitive players because your eyes can drift to something that's a little bit more tangible is the term I'll use. The, the hole's absolute. If you've got a liner or the dirt's been painted white, it stands out and attracts your eye. And it can distract you from what you're attempting to see, which is the break. Uh, I think a lot of players, good, bad, and different with skill level, if they would look from behind the hole back at the ball, all of a sudden they see more of this break. They see more of their apex simply because now not only do they take their focus off of the hole, they see the hole relative to the entire putt, and now the ball is no longer the focus as well. I think most of the time you get distracted by the hole because you're so consumed with the ball first, the whole second, and you're standing over the ball astride it, creating some visual parallaxes, and that hole offers a little bit of security from a visualization standpoint of view, whereas if you stand on the extended line of the putt from behind the hole, now all of a sudden the hole does become your true target. You get to see the apex a little cleaner. You get to see where gravity takes over for velocity. You want to use some physics terms to it, and you, it's a more, it's a cleaner look at that last third, uh, based on the the length. I always say it's between a quarter and a third of the last bit of the putt where you're going to see most of the curve. It, that's also relative to the distance you strike it with, the, the speed control you use. But I, I would absolutely agree. That's something that I'm always asking my better players to work on for them to understand apex to for them to maximize apex and not necessarily minimize it i think the higher handicap player because they are distracted by the whole tends to minimize break where when you watch the great putters of the world particularly the ones that are in contention sunday male or female they're probably maximizing that break a lot more than you realize right um, and, you know, I, I think it's just, uh, again, I think this is an area, most people are pretty, I mean, your distance, your speed is, is one, obviously, on your straighter putts, um, you know, you're not really dealing with any uh, break, if you will, or very, very minimal uh, for the most part. It's so so minute, you can pretty much aim anywhere uh, at the hole, and you're pretty much assured if you get the right distance and speed. But... With breaking putts, this is where I think a lot of amateurs really fall short, and, and I think what you and, and what Clint offered up before, I think, uh, uh, hopefully will help a few people. Because this is an area, you know, I, I mean, I, I see so many people that, you know, get into a situation where they might have a six, seven, or eight-foot putt with a break, and they're thinking, okay, I've got to putt it like I'm putting eight feet, and you're really not, because it might be, the apex might be at, uh, you know, five feet or of you know, six feet, four feet, what have you, depending on the level of break. And that's really all you're putting to. And if you're putting it like an eight-foot putt, you're going to blow it past the hole or you're going to put it right through the break. And a lot of players have a real tough time 
I, you know, I've even over the years have found myself forgetting that and, you know, just blowing it right through the break um, simply because, um, you know, I, I wasn't focusing on where the actual apex was. So that's a, a real tough one, I think, for a lot of amateurs. Um, Clint, this is one here that's kind of interesting. I'm coming back to you. Uh, and he talks about, okay. uh, Dave, is developing a forward press. And I'll give you an idea. I know you know what it is, but just for the listeners. So what he's talking about is, unlike most golf shots, uh, the grip of the putter should remain perpendicular as long as possible through impact for both putts and, and short chips, as he adds in there as well. Uh, he indicates, he says, this keeps the putter head low to the ground, which allows the golf ball to hug the surface of the green and develop true roll more quickly. And, of course, this naturally de-lofts the club face, so you want to make sure that you're starting with enough static loft on your putter at address uh, for more, and he suggests, uh, four degrees. So what he's really saying here is that what you want to guard against is letting the putter heads basically go past the hands. He's talking about keeping the hands slightly ahead if, uh, so that as you're coming through, you're actually de-lofting it slightly. Uh, again, only we're only talking a couple of degrees. Um, what are your thoughts here? Um, uh, you know, again, everybody's different, but I think what he's essentially saying here is this is going to help you preventing so sort of popping the ball or skidding the ball. Uh, you're going to get a much truer stroke. What do you think? Well, I think that if you, if you look at a trigger to get the putter to go back, a lot of people over the years, not so much recently, but in in the, in the 60s and 70s maybe you saw quite a few players that would have a bit of a forward press just to kind of get their stroke moving. The The problem I've always had with a forward press for, for most is that, you know, they go through all kind of different things to get the ball, the putter face lined up in the proper relationship to their target line. And then if they're not careful in a forward press, that alignment's mm-hmm. going to change. Right. So effectively, when they forward press it, they've already altered the putter face off the line. So I would warn people to be very careful with the forward press and making sure that if you do forward press it, that the hands move the toe and the heel together towards mm-hmm. the target, the D-loft, okay? Because what I see most people do is their hands will push away from their body. Yep. And so that's going to that's going to that's going to open the the putter face up. Uh if you you just can look at it if I take my hands, put it on the putter square, forward press and my hands move away from my body, the heel is coming more than the toe and I'm going to come through with a with the putter face more open to the line uh or not open to the line, it's just going to be to the right. The, you, because the alignment of your putter changed when you moved your hands away. So I, I would guard people against the, the forward press a little bit, you know, but some other teachers, John may like the forward press. It's just a personal thing. But but I just find it easier to get a person to relax, take their grip pressure down, to, you know, maybe something of that nature to get it going, you know. If you got your hands on it, relax them a little bit, and then go. I think that's a better kind of jump start the stroke than what a forward press might be. But if you find that it works for you, uh, that, that's fine. It works. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's an, a really interesting point that you raised because, you know, it's not something, when you again, when you think it, and it's the same thing actually with uh, whether it be a chip shot um, uh, or even um, initiating with a forward press on an iron. Uh, any other iron or, or shot, uh, by doing that, again, if you're not doing it correctly, uh, 
then you're potentially opening up the club face and then again you're having to correct at some point through the swing so um, I, I agree. I think it, it's certainly a, a great point. This is something that he's obviously, uh, in his case, has perfected, but it's something that you definitely have to be mindful of um, if you're going to teach that uh, forward press movement. So I agree. That's a great point. Um, John, I'm going to come back to you. This is a really interesting one. I found this kind of interesting because, you know, we're always telling everybody to practice, you know, and, this, and he says, beware of practice swings, the header on this one. He says, for many players... I advocate not taking any practice swings as this causes you to think too much. But he said, but if you do, at least do it directly behind the golf ball on the target line rather than parallel to the uh, target line as most players do. I found this one really interesting because, you know, I won't say he's contradicting himself, but preferably he's saying, I don't really want you to take practice swings because it's going to put you in a mindset. It's going to take you out of your your pre-shot, if you will, and and your thought process, and it's going to creep in other things. But if you are going to do it, then here's how I suggest you do it. Um, And really what what he's saying here is the way you are viewing the path, your ball will actually take just as you would uh, with a practice shot with a pool cue. So what he's saying is as opposed to being parallel, if you get behind the ball, and if you're going to do a practice stroke, that's where you're going to do it because that's going to simulate the actual line of the putt um, in your practice stroke. Give me your thoughts here on on being beware of practice swings. What do you think? That's for you, John. Sorry, I had to unmute. I would I would take his thoughts and twist them a little bit. And not to be mean, I think a lot of people make practice strokes and have no clue what they're thinking of, and that leads to them thinking about too much. Uh, Sort of Mm -hmm. to agree with them, but from a completely different angle. Uh, There are people that I've, whether it's putting or anything else, I've got to warn them that too many practice swings Mm -hmm. for no apparent reason whatsoever is not a good thing, that there's got to be a purpose to it. There's got to be a reason what Dave's basically saying is standing behind the ball, looking at the line provides you the reason, provides you the visualization. That works mm-hmm. for some people. You, you see quite a few tour pros. You see quite a few highly ranked amateurs that will make their practice strokes that way. You see another handful that do it astride the ball, beside the ball. Uh, it, it's it's different for everybody based on how they visualize their putt and how the practice stroke, and, and this is my opinion, how their practice stroke equates to their distance control. What I see mm-hmm. is with somebody who has a really hard time with distance control, they'll tend to stand beside the ball, where those who have a really good understanding and control over their distance they tend to stand behind the ball because they want to have that final look at what the putt's going to do for them. Uh, That's just a generalization. I think it's different for everybody. I would agree. Mm You got to have a purpose behind any stroke practice or not, but at the same time, make that purpose very succinct. Basically is what he's saying. Make sure it's very short. It's sweet. It's to the point and get to business right away. Don't, don't belabor those practice strokes if you, if you must make them. You know, what's really interesting, great, great points, John. What's really interesting, too, uh, Cindy raised a very interesting point that a lot of people don't realize, and she actually had a few weeks ago, we were talking about this, 
just this past Tuesday, but she was referencing uh, a conversation we had a few weeks ago with one of the players, uh, again from the Epson tour. And her view on this is, you know, what Dave is saying is okay, but she said the thing that you have to take into consideration is whether or not you're left or right eye dominant. And a lot of people don't think that. And she was talking with a tour player and asked them that, and they didn't know. And there's a, obviously a very simple test that where you, you, know, you put your hands up and on a, you know, you're looking through at a, like a, you would a, a set of binoculars, but you're doing it with one. And you visualize a, a specific target, and then you close one eye and then the other. And whatever eye opens up looking through that target is your dominant eye. And what she was saying, the point she was making was getting behind, as Dave suggests, if you're right, high, uh, right eye, again, for right-handed players, if you're right eye dominant, then that target line is going to be true. But if you're left eye dominant, it's going to be skewed slightly. And people don't realize that. And I found it a very interesting point because most people don't know whether they're left or right eye dominant. And it makes a difference in how you visualize putts. Um, and she referenced her... Uh, her husband, Alan, who uh, for a long time w had difficulty reading putts because he was, um, I can't remember now, she said it was either left or right eye dominant, and he didn't know that. So when he was lining up the putts, he was looking at it, again, from the side and had difficulty visualizing certain things because he was one or the other. So it's a very interesting approach, and um, I, I know it's sort of expanding a little more than probably what needs to, but I just found it very interesting. And there's a, a way, if you go online, there's lots of ways to do it, but uh, you can test that. And it tells you, uh, again, how you will visualize uh, the putts, whether or not you're left or right eye dominant for a right-handed player and conversely, obviously, for a left-hand player. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that very interesting. I don't know if either of you have uh, come across that before or yeah. not, but I just found it was kind of, Interesting. Sorry, Clint, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, I think it's an absolute thing. Um, and here's what I suggest that people do. Once they determine whether right eye dominant or left eye dominant, I'm left eye dominant. So mm -hmm. when I'm reading the putt or looking at it, I put my left foot on the line that I want it to go on because mm -hmm. that puts my left eye over the line. Okay, so although the, the, the visual is an important thing, it's where you stand, whether you're to the right of the ball or the left of the ball, well, you want to be able to get your dominant eye looking straight down the line. So what I suggest is use, if you're right eye dominant, put your right foot on the line when you're standing behind it. Put your right foot on the line that you want it to go down, and that puts your dominant eye over the line. If you stand directly behind it, you've never got your dominant eye looking down the line. It's always looking across it. So just a, a suggestion, people, once they determine what it is, use their, their leg and foot position when they stand reading the putts to help get their dominant eye directly over the line. But it, there's no question mm -hmm. it's a very important. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, most people don't really think of something like that. And, you know, I think it's a good idea for, for people to test themselves to see whether or not uh, you know, you don't need to go to a doctor or anything to do it. It's a very simple process, but um, it That's is right. it does play a role because it does equate to how you visualize uh, a target line. And if you don't know which 
I, you're dominant, it's going to affect that. And until you figure that out, you're going to have problems. And this, it was interesting because this young lady that came on the show didn't have an idea, and she talked about having difficulties with certain putts. And she gave her that test, and she said, well, you know, go on out. And then, of course, they communicated later after, you know, an event, and she said it made a world of difference, knowing which, which eye she was dominant. So it obviously, you know, it's That's not, nice. you know, yeah, exactly. So um, something for people to think about. Um, uh, John, I'm going to come to you on this one. I've got time for a couple more quick questions, and then we'll, we'll have to cut it off. But um, mm-hmm. he talks about here nurturing a natural movement. So he, he talks about here um, people often putt worse, as he puts it, as adults as they do as kids because they get too wrapped up in technique. And this is not just in putting. This is obviously in everything. So he, th- he says, I don't think putting is nearly as difficult an endeavor as people make it out to be. I don't like words like try and hit. You need to stroke the putt with feel and roll rather than trying to hit it. Uh, he's indicating there's a big difference. So by getting a rhythm to your routine, uh, he likes to keep his putter head moving even before starting the backswing by placing it ahead of the ball before returning it to address position. So in other words, um, it's really part of his routine, number one, to keep the ball moving. But he's not getting so wrapped up as he puts it in technique. And this is a problem, again, that a lot of pro- – so what are some ways, I think, that maybe we could help people understand um, that you're not really hitting the ball, but it's a putting stroke, and you're actually stroking through uh, the ball, if you will. But what are some things about uh, you know what he's saying here? Again, do you agree? And, and if so, maybe uh, expand a little bit on, on what you think and maybe how we can help some of the golfers out there. In essence, what he's talking about is action versus reaction. And I've been on the record mm-hmm. in this program and others about, hey, golf's an action sport, but yet we are a reactionary type of species. We, we are hardwired to react. So when he's talking about keeping the putter moving or placing it in front of the ball and then bringing it back, when you're talking about through the ball, these are all reactions that you never think about. So when he's talking about a young person who's more natural, their stroke, they they just set up and go. A lot of that, they have less negativity emblazoned in their mind of how many missed putts they've executed versus how many made putts they've executed over the course of their golfing career. Uh, With less negativity, you're going to be more positive about things, whereas an adult compound it not only with the negative results, uh, and I'll, I'll quote Bobby Locke here in a second, the the real key is we feel like because we're adults and we can rationalize better that we should be thinking more. And that's totally to the contrary. I just got done talking about uh, thinking too much and not having a purpose behind the thinking. Bobby Locke, a very famous probably one of the world's, if not the world's best putter ever, never, ever looked at his ball. He had to have his caddy cue him that the ball had come to a stop. And the reason for it was that, in essence, to paraphrase him, he was always told he was the world's best putter. So if he was being told that and he had such a great stroke, a a very natural stroke that felt great, yet he knew most of his putts were not going to go in the hole, then why should he look up and see the negativeness of missing a putt? And there's a lot mm-hmm. to be said about that, especially as an adult. There's a lot of times I'll have adults who are 
thinking too much, who are not natural, who just close their eyes. And when they can auditorially confirm the ball went in the hole, eyebrows hit the hit the hairlines of some very bald people sometimes. It's it's incredible to see people understand and realize that if they become more reactive to their putting and less active, less thought provoked, they become more the natural putter that they have the potential to be. It's it's I'm not going to say it's really clear and clean cut because, again, everybody's a little bit different with this. Everybody has a little bit different stroke to them. But at the end of the day, it is about through. And if you're thinking too much, there's no way you can get through. So a lot of what he's talking about is ways to react, ways to be more natural, and ways to take the negativity that you can constantly are seeing when you miss a putt. If you're averaging 32 putts around, then, you know, how many of those 32 did you actually make? Probably half, Mm -hmm. maybe less. And you're hoping you made 18 out of the 32. At least that's the count. At least that's what we're thinking of. But if you're putting 40 times and you're seeing a lot more negative than you are positive, take that away and you've got a chance. You've got a relative chance to become a better putter simply because you become more reactive versus trying to think through the action. You know, it, it's it's interesting, some great points. You know, Clint, it's interesting that really, and there were a few other points I didn't get to just because of time, but um, what, what I find really interesting about his, his analogies here is they're not really so much dealing with the actual putting technique itself. It's really about the mind and how you perceive things if you really break it down. You know, he talks about um, a few things, uh, adjustments that he personally has found uh, makes uh, uh, a better putter. But he's really talking about, and it sort of comes into culmination into the last point that I'm going to make here and let you respond to, and that is to be confident. You know, he's giving you tips based on his experiences and what he's found through a variety of different tests, not only uh, you know, with companies like TaylorMade and and obviously with tour players and things like that uh, that he's worked with, but uh, or or you know coached and guided. Um, but he's really talking about things mentally to prepare, um, to overlook, to you know brush to the side because it's not really important. In other words, when you know as John was just pointing out, is you know not getting so caught up in the thought process and. Um, you know, just sort of getting over there and, and doing what needs to get done. And obviously, as you sink more putts and you become a more proficient putter, your confident level's going to go up. And I think this is something, again, that we want our students to be able to do is to have that confidence. So when they stand over, whether it's a short, you know, three, four, five-foot putt uh, or a 20-foot putt, they're going to have confidence that they know that they're going to be able to put the best stroke that they can possibly do on that ball, uh, and the outcome, the percentages are going to be higher in their favor as opposed to not. What do you see as a key area in addition to or including what I just said, um, becoming a confident putter? Well, <clears throat> I think if there, there's all kind of people that have been con- you know, credited with saying it, but is that putting is important, but one putt's not. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, so you have to pay attention. But one of the things y'all were talking about earlier is that we think we know more than we do. You know, so maybe we start connecting. Hey, I don't need to know a lot about what I'm doing. I just need to know enough to keep the putter online. So it's a very mm-hmm. simple approach that may give us an opportunity to relax over the putt. I think confidence is a is an emotion, not necessarily mental. Like fear is an emotion. You know, if you can manage not having those emotional thoughts about, well, what am I going to do if I miss this putt? Or is it going to roll three foot by? Those are thoughts you can't have before you hit it. Um, mm-hmm. And so try to minimize the the consequence thought uh, and roll the ball towards the hole. You know, the, the old saying was the ball's got to stop somewhere, so might as well be in the hole. But if you stand <laughs> over it, and you know, um, and you're thinking about what's going to happen when it doesn't go in, then there's no way you can have confidence in what you're doing. Um, I like to have a person to be more relaxed and and take the results as they are. Uh, you know, the, the old thing about you're never going to make the same swing twice. You're never going to make the same putting stroke twice. But you can very well get prepared to give yourself the best chance of hitting a successful shot the same way every time. So mm-hmm. there is a bit of discovery involved of how do you calm yourself. We all do it differently. How do you calm yourself over any shot? But most importantly, calm yourself over a putt because that is the final you know, objective of the game is to put the ball in the hole. Everything else is just getting you up there to where you can finish. So if we can calm ourselves over the putt, whatever process we need to deal with that, take your hands off. I like to see a person take their hands off the putter, one of the last things to do, and regrip. Cut the tension level, calm yourself down, and make the ball go towards the hole. Um, so confidence, if you want to call it that, will come out of making more putts. And if you do some of these things, you make more putts. So there's a part of the process that works to get you to feel like you got a better chance of making them. But I feel like if I can settle in on a process of calming myself down, taking the tension level out of my body at that point, that's what gives me the best chance of making the putt. And if you want to call that confidence, you can, but I think it's more of a get yourself prepared and you do this mm-hmm. by discovery of how that works for you. Get yourself prepared to make the best stroke you can and and then take the results. That's all you can do. Yeah, it's it, you're exactly right. And it goes back to what we've we've talked about so many times on the show and it, it all wraps around um and I know you're talking about this, your your pre shot routine. Um you're preparing for right. the shot. And you know, what difference uh makes it different from pros to to the amateurs is the pros have developed a routine that works for them whatever it may be uh and they stick with it every single shot they do the same thing and when that cadence and it develops a cadence for them number one but it also again it calms their mind it gets them prepared um for whatever shot they may be faced with in this case you know on the putting surface um and for some reason if something throws them off kilter they will repeat that routine from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're doing Absolutely. that is because they know that, that that number one, that cadence has been broken, that rhythm has been broken, uh, and that thought process has been broken. They're not thinking a thousand things. They've got one, maybe two thoughts that they've got going through their head, um, whatever that may be, for, for again, for the individual. 
and that's what they're going through their routine the routine it's a process uh to get themselves prepared to to stroke the the pot and i think again this is where we see john i'm going to bring you in here for the last comment is where we see a lot of our um amateur golfers really waffle a lot with this is because they don't have a consistent pre-shot routine they're all over the place and they can't get settled over the ball what are your thoughts here as we close out agree and it's something that i'm constantly harping on all my clients about that you're inconsistent at being inconsistent uh they, they want to see consistency in ball flight I, I try to get them to understand that your preparation for that ball flight is so inconsistent how can the ball flight be be consistent how can your putting be consistent if your preparation for a putt is inconsistent it's it's not a very hard thing to understand that if you want an outcome to repeat you've got to set up the machinery correctly so it has a chance to repeat but then we also have to put into consideration we're human beings we're prone to error And with that, when you're trying to be, quote, unquote, consistent, are you really trying to be consistent or are you looking for this perfection that's never going to happen because you are prone to error? Uh, Mm -hmm. It it all boils down to something simple. Do something simple. It doesn't matter what it is, but do it in the same order. If you're a client of mine and you're listening, you're going to love to hear this because what's your zip code or what's your area code? That's what I'm always basing uh, instruction and coaching on. If you can memorize your area code, whether it's 407 or 516 or 978, it doesn't matter what it is, and you can remember these simple things to do in the same order, guess what you're doing? You're becoming consistent. And with that Mm -hmm. consistency, you may work yourself out of any inconsistency, particularly putting, Simply because you are that much closer to the hole, your errors are magnified. So, therefore, look at it this way. Not only are your errors magnified, your inconsistency of being inconsistent is becoming magnified as well. Yeah. And, you know, something I've noticed a lot with, you know, when I watch players, um, whether I'm in their group or, or watching them on the practice tee, is, you know, they'll start out with a pretty good you know, pre-shot routine, they're going through the process, everything looks good, you know, they hit a couple of good shots, suddenly they hit a bad shot, and then the very next shot that they're getting ready for goes through um, where suddenly they will uh, fall out of that routine. It starts speeding up, or they're slowing down, usually it's speeding up, and now all of a sudden they don't have that same routine. So it's always very interesting when I watch um, amateur golfers, particularly how they... um, will not go consistently through their routine based on how the performance, the outcome of the shot before was. So if it was a good shot, they'll go through it again for the most part. If it's a bad shot, they'll sort of decompose, decompress, and suddenly everything kind of falls out the window. So it's very, very interesting. Um, Great points, guys. Um, As always, I'll give you a quick moment to uh, let the folks know where they can reach out. Clint, I'm going to let you go first, and then John. Okay. Ted, Ted, thanks. It's been been fun as always. But it's kind of kind of a great thing to be in that tenth year. I know it's special for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, look forward to this summer and having some great conversations. And John, 
good luck with your summer program. I'm, I'm kind of envious. I'd love to go to Macklemore. Uh, I think it's a beautiful place. So good, good luck with that program, and, and uh, we look forward to uh, having a conversation in about a month from now. Thanks, Clint. Uh, John, go ahead. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks, Clint. Appreciate that. And what Clint's alluding to is there are four more days, three more days for you to reserve your spot with me at Macklemore. So I'm calling it one of the best-kept secrets in golf, quite honestly. It's got a top-10 finishing hole in all the world, a top-100 public course. There's a lot of good things going on up there. i got to thank my good friend, Charlie Reimer, who's the vice president of golf operations, inviting me up and allowing me to do that. Uh, reach out to me, johnhughesgolf.com, at johnhughesgolf, hashtag johnhughesgolf. It's really simple to find me. And, again, Ted, thanks for allowing me to become tardy. You didn't have to accept my call, and <laughs> I appreciate that. As always, Clint, great to be part of the program with you. And, Look forward to yeah, more buddy. in the coming future if he allows me back on after being tardy. It's, John, it's, you're, it's, you're it's always marginal. <laughs> yeah, you're always welcome. But just to let you know, uh, when Clint first started out in the show, he started at the back of the bus. Uh, he's moved his way yeah. up to the front of the bus. My friend John, <laughs> sorry, but you have to move towards the back of the bus. So um, yeah. not a problem. Anyways, guys, have a great weekend. That's how my career and was I'll, uh, built was in the back of the bus. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to you guys next time. Oh, Thanks for joining goodness. me on the Coach's Corner panel. Very good. Have a good weekend, guys. See you guys. Thanks, Bye-bye. Ted. All right. Uh, John Hughes and Clint Wright joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. Always uh, a good time. We're going to take a quick, short break, and then I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, Nicole, Nicole Weller. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right. Thank you and welcome back. I'm very excited this evening for a number of reasons, and I'll share that with you in a moment. Uh, my very special guest is a both a member of the PJ of America and the LPJ's Teaching and Club Profession uh, Division. Uh, she's also a U.S. Kids Golf and Spirit of Golf certified uh, instructor. Uh, she's attended the TPI and the TPI Junior uh, clinics, and she's also served on two PJ National Youth Player Development Committees, one LPJ Education Committee, and one PJ Special National Awards Committee. Uh, she's been a presenter at the PJ's National Youth and Family Summits and the LPJ National Teaching Summit, as well as PJ sections across uh, the country. Please welcome my very special guest, uh, LPJ and PJ professional Nicole Weller. Good evening, Nicole. How are you? Hello. I'm fine, Ted. Great chatting with you this evening. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. You know, it's funny. You put a post up uh, the other night, um, obviously indicating about coming on the show. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. In fact, I think the last time you were on, um, yeah, you've been on every season, haven't you? 
just about every season since you started. This is a special honor. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I always enjoy having you on. And for those of you just tuning in and aren't uh, haven't heard this part of it, and this is what I was waiting to say, is Nicole was actually my very first guest 10 years ago on Golf Talk Live. Um, very mm-hmm. first evening I launched this program. Uh, you very graciously came on the first, and like I said, pretty much I think every season. I think you might have missed one year, uh, but other uh, yeah. than that, uh, you've pretty much been here every every year. Um, so I'm always uh, happy to have you and, and uh, appreciate it. So before we get into tonight's discussion in, in more detail, give the folks, again, that maybe aren't familiar with you, a little bit of, about you yourself and how you got into golf. What sort of ignited your fire and passion uh, to take up this game, number one, and more importantly, what sort of, again, ignited that passion to, to make you become uh, a professional instructor? Sounds good. So my life in a nutshell in one minute. I, uh, uh, <laughs> right. I was raised by uh, my parents, both immigrated from Europe, Switzerland and Germany, and when I was about a year and a half, they uh, moved to Massachusetts, and Dad and Mom built a house on the 10th fairway of Heritage Hill Country Club. And so when I was four, Dad started taking up the game. And I started tagging along, you know, bringing his bag, chasing butterflies, frogs, whatever. And we would just go out and spend some great dad-daughter time. And it was right in the backyard. So that that was my that was a great backyard to have. It was a beautiful course. It's now called the Back Nine Club. And Bob G.C.'s the head pro there. I've seen him throughout the, my my life. And that's how it really all started. And started taking lessons from Bob Day, who was at Brockton. And then he moved to Foxborough and ended up um, playing a lot of state events, national events, AJGA, U.S. Pub Links, which I miss, and that tournament, and played Wake Forest uh, scholarship and went to uh, UT Knoxville for my master's degree. So you just never know. I, you know. I went to Wake Forest thinking I wanted to be the anchor woman on the NBC Nightly News, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. That's probably the furthest thing that I wanted to do at this point. So you never know where life takes you. Right. <laughs> Well, we're glad that you decided to uh, uh, stick with golf and, and make that your career, and you, you've done a, a great job and have certainly been well-recognized uh, within the industry and both the PGA and, of course, the LPGA uh, uh, organizations as well. Um, you know, what's really interesting, um, and, and this is I, I know we're going to talk about uh, your women's retreats and, and uh, uh, your one-day programs and so forth, but I want to talk about something else too because um, you have really – in my opinion, built a legacy um, with junior golf. And I'm not talking about just everyday juniors. I mean, we're we're seeing a lot of that with a lot of instructors. But you've really, for lack of better words, grabbed the bull by the horn. I mean, when I look at the programs that you've fostered over the years, and we'll talk about some of that, um, you're not just teaching, you know, the 7, 8, 9, 10, and, and up. I mean, you're getting right in there with even younger than that. And a lot of people say, well, how do you do that? And, and you, you've touched on that in the past shows. But you have really developed a niche in this industry, unlike I think anybody else. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I know you're very proud of the accomplishments that you've done um, and are continuing to expand upon. But what was it about working with juniors? And I know you do work with others as well, but you really, as I said, grabbed this by the horn. What was it about working with that sort of that younger next generation um, that really drew your eye? You know, I really, I really love working with the two to three year olds and then the four to five year olds a lot. They're, they're just the, the, the wonderful things they say, and they are just at the start of their life. 
and they're exploring mm-hmm. life. So I guess the way I teach them, it's more of a holistic approach. Um, I want to teach mm-hmm. life lessons through golf, and I want to empower them to be more independent. Um, while I teach them, I teach the parents on how to allow children to be independent. Um, I think that that's really important that they develop their way to learn and explore and not be told, here's exactly how you have to do it, because they're, they're not adults right. yet. And we want to, we want to cre- you know, I, I love creativity, so I want them to, to have some creativity. So I, uh, I, I, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I took a 4-H class and I uh, started babysitting. I did a lot of babysitting in high school, and I actually played with the kids. I brought them out skiing and sledding, and we played games, and we just never really sat around and just watched TV. So I enjoyed, you know, being creative and and giving them just ways to have a good time. So I always liked that. And at the Landings Club, I know I helped with the junior program a lot, the youth program, and then started going younger and younger to just, it was just fun. I love that age group. And I think that's why some people are kindergarten teachers and others excel at like, you know, high school biology because they like Mm -hmm. that age group or college. So I just really love the the freshness that I see with the the two to five-year-olds and you know, when people say, how do you work with a two or three year old? And I'm like, how do you not? I mean, this is so fun. And it is a fast pace. You're doing maybe 10 minutes on a topic. Um, sometimes they can stay longer and sometimes less. But, you know, getting the ball in the hole, giving them a good time, um, that that's what keeps them coming back. They have plenty of time to become adults. They are they're not little versions of adults. And, you know, kids don't develop mm-hmm. cognitively until 10, 11-ish, 12-ish. So I think it's important to let them be kids. You know, like when I watched um, uh, Charlie and Tiger play, you know, that tournament together, mm-hmm. I, I was it was amazing to see. Right. I'm just like, I hope he can still be a kid, you know, without mm-hmm. everybody um, um, getting on him to, to tap into his potential. So I think that's important. Yeah, and you know what? Who knows? He may, Charlie may, uh, I mean, it's probably not likely. I think he's going to, somewhat follow in his father's footsteps i think he has bitten by the right. bug like many of us do but but i oh, think yeah. that you know he may he may develop a different path he may gravitate more i mean he, i'm sure he's going to play a little bit but he may decide you know what i don't want to play as much as maybe i'd like to teach or or do a, a right. different part or maybe do something entirely different but golf will always be a part of his life of course thanks to you know his his dad um what, what's always interesting is you know when i look at what you do and you're so you're so right, uh, right on the money. Is this is a fun time at that age group, the two, three, four, five um, age group? Because uh, again, cognitively they're not developed yet, and you know they're wandering all over, chasing butterflies, as you pointed out earlier. As you know, when you were mm-hmm. in that age group, um, and so you know sometimes it's, it can be a little difficult to corral uh, the youngsters in, in, in and keep them busy. What was really interesting, though, we talked about this, uh, it wasn't last year, but I think it was the year before, we had some of the parents to come on and joined you on the show, and we talked about some of the pressures that the kids fall under um, and end up getting to the point where they actually turn away from the game because it becomes too much high pressure at too young of an age. They're not ready to handle that. So I know you keep it very simple at that age group, but... What I really liked is, Nicole, is that you emphasize the word fun and, and you know, you make a game out of it inside the game. Talk about some of the things that you do to make it fun for them. 
So, yeah, I just had about 10 things run through my mind, and I'll remember maybe half of them. But I think the first thing, too, when we see a bug, I mean, the whole class stops for the bug. We have to take a look at it and explore it. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's not golf. I want them to be learning golf, and that's the adult expectation. And I think would a parent go into a pre-K class or a kindergarten class and tell kids that they couldn't do something, you know, they had to do it this way or they had to do a certain way. So it is, it's basically preschool exploration through golf ideas. So I use a lot of color, props. Uh, kids are very visual. They mm-hmm. cannot sit there and listen to a lecture. Um, they just no. don't learn. They learn visually, right? And so um, think of a preschool setting and then think of a high school classroom. Very different entities. So you want to attract the attention. They come up and a lot of times the setup that you have, you know, they want to get in and they'll tear it up already. So a lot of times I will put um, balls or crayons or uh, different activities for them to stay engaged because they are constantly moving. They are in motion. Um, Play is how they learn. So I I really like having a lot of different games out there and uh, activities. U.S. Kids Golf has a lot of great activities. Um, um, I did a little golf train, a company in the past where we came up with creative ideas Um, But I think that's super important. And, you know, my recent book, the one that just came out last year, Big Thoughts from Little Golfers, at the beginning of each chapter, I have tips for parents on how to effectively work with kids at ages two to three and four to five. And then there's a chapter in there with a lot of nods to Positive Coaching Alliance, which I absolutely love, and um, how to help parents become better sports parents and more effective sports parents. So, you know, the kids don't have to have to – kind of take on the expectation. The car ride home, for example, is a very dangerous place to turn a kid off to mm-hmm. off to what happens. Parents want to analyze and help and how are we going to get you better? And the, the kid just may want an ice cream. You know, it just let me let me just yeah. unwind. So it's kind of like a parent coming out of a really tough meeting for three or four hours and then somebody wanting to sit them down and analyze what just went on. Let, let's dissect it. So, <laughs> right. yeah. so hopefully those ideas will help. Yeah, and it, 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 it can be a pressure cooker, and I think, you know, for these youngsters, again, they, they need time, just as we do, to decompress from the day. And even right. though they might have had a lot of fun, you know, there's a lot of things that, that you know, come into mind. You know, and it's interesting, we, we've all gone through this um, struggle over the last couple of years with the pandemic. It's been very sort of knocked everybody off kilter. But one of the interesting things um, that has happened as a result is golf has really um, – noticed a a major uptick in participation for a couple of reasons first and foremost obviously people were just wanting to get the heck out of dodge and and you know get out of the house and you know stop watching netflix or whatever it is they're watching um and just get out and be able to do something so that obviously drew a lot of people that maybe didn't have um initially an interest uh in the game and then there's of course the regular golfers that you know couldn't wait to get back to the golf course uh, and in certain areas, depending on where it was, you know, it, it rolled out a little bit differently. But what was really interesting is there's, in addition to just sort of your average everyday golfer, a lot of people spent a lot of time with their families and are now looking at golf as more of a family thing to do. It's another option for them to, to do. So going to your last point, if the parents are riding these kids and pushing them in a direction they're missing an opportunity for sort of the next family event to say, hey, let's let's go to the putting, uh, you know, let's go to the mini putt or let's go and do this, uh, you know, I'll have a golf day. 
together as a family. And that's really what we're starting to see happening is more and more families are coming to uh, the game as a result of initially of the pandemic, but by spending time together. And this is something that I think, you know, as parents, um, you want to see your children be involved in, in other activities and especially in a family environment. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. And I think you have to look at what the definition of fun is because a 44-year-old mm-hmm. uh, may have a different definition of fun based on, a, you know, versus a 5-year-old. So I think that's super important to kind of say what what's going to be fun. You know, adults tend to gravitate towards results and pro- and the progress, you know, and kids might, uh, they might do something that makes absolutely no sense to the adult and come up with crazy games where the adult's like, whoa, whoa, let's tame it down a little bit. And as long as the kids are safe and, and they're creative, I think that's important. So um, the family golf is really taking off. I see, you know, when I was at Longleaf, it was fun to see the, the families get there and then the, you know, two kids leaving the, um, uh, the putting green to run up to me, you know, leaving the mom and dad right there. So um, just to come up and say hi so that was good yeah and and i think there's you know we're we're moving you know for a long time and we're certainly not out of the woods yet but for a long time you know the family unit had sort of gone a different direction you know kids the last thing they want to do was you know to be with mom and dad they wanted to kind of do their own thing um, but now we're starting to see with everything going on you know and we won't have to go down that road but um you know, in, in, in our, our everyday lives, you're seeing families starting to come together, and especially with the younger generations, the younger families coming in now, they're wanting to create an environment. And golf is really unique because even though it can be competitive, more importantly, it can be fun and something that you can do at all ages. And you, you can sometimes ratchet down that, that competitiveness a little bit, you know, especially as an adult. It's like, again, you meet the kid at their level um, and just go out and have some fun. Um, and then, you know, when you're doing your thing by yourself or with your foursome or whatever, then, you know, you can ratchet it back up to a more competitive field. But I think this is a great opportunity for families, especially new younger families that have never been around golf, um, to be able to be introduced to the game as a family. And are you starting, I think you said this, that you're starting to notice that now a little bit more too? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's it's so great to see like dads come out with the daughters or the parents bringing the kids out, you know, at the resort playing the cradle or getting out on the course. Um, and you'll see parents out with a lot more, you know, three, four-year-olds, um, obviously getting the right equipment into their hand, like the littlest golfer for super young or, you know, U.S. kids. But now the kids are able to, to play with, with clubs that are a little bit better fitted, make it make it more fun. There's that word again, more user-friendly. So, mm-hmm. But even with, like, my dad, I posted a picture a couple of weeks ago I came across of the 13th hole at the course I grew up on. And there was the pond that when it was iced over in the winter in Massachusetts, our goal was to have two bounces on the ice to make it over. If you bounce it <laughs> once or three times, you had a penalty. And I just, I'll never right. forget that hole. And we had a lot of challenging little contests. So um, I still do that when I, you know, I train people in the academy every week. We talk about blocked practice and then we talk about transfer. Mm-hmm. And, and the transfer, the scrimmaging is a part that people kind of, they've, they've lost that art. You know, hitting a bunch of balls only lasts a certain time for learning and attention. It's like going to the gym. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't bench press for 45 minutes straight. But people will hit balls for 45 to 60 minutes and expect a youngster to do that. And even for adults, that's no good. You know, we need 15 to 20-minute no. bursts. We need to be interleaving and, and challenging ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. You have to sort of mix it up. 
Um, so let's talk about some of the things, the other things that you're doing. Um, you've got a, a very interesting Learn Golf in One Day programs. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I love that class. You know, it, it started years back with PGA Get Golf Ready, and then LPGA has a 101 class. So there, there are versions of it. And initially, PGA did a Get Golf Ready $99 for five lessons. And I found as I was developing that in Savannah at the Landings Club, you know, out of five weeks, most people couldn't make one or two of them. So then we had makeups to work on and I just found it was better in one day. And so I do a six-hour program. Mm -hmm. It goes by so fast, Ted. And we basically have mm -hmm. uh, an introduction. You know, we do a, a little one-minute uh, mingle, learn some things about each other, fun facts, talk about equipment. I actually have a trophy uh, that I won at my first AJGA tournament in a playoff when I was like, 16 or so in Pennsylvania and talk about the evolution of the golf ball. And then I have a couple of hickory clubs and then we segue into equipment. So we only use a putter wedge and a seven iron or eight iron uh, for the program. And uh, we do basic putting with drills, just fun drills and then chipping. And then we do some full swing off of tees after they hit some tees and we have a working lunch. Uh, we have grab a lunch and then we go over a training manual, um, that I've created and kind of just highlight some things there, and especially new new formats for beginners to play, how to get out and start as a new golfer, and uh, the longleaf tee system, how to play from the appropriate teeing lengths. Um, that's a big, big area of mine. Uh, then we go on the course, and we ride a hole, and we talk about everything. We just do like a safari, no playing, because I, I find they can't mm -hmm. focus and play, there's too much info. We just ride it and learn, you know, here's the cart path and where's the flag stick and how do you mark a ball. Then we go play a scramble and we come back and I have some graduation fun things for them. So it, it goes by quickly. You know, it's really interesting. And, and again, obviously you're, you're talking about a younger demographic, but it's, it's interesting because I think there could be some adult programs like that as well, because you'd be surprised. And I know you can attest to this. How many adults, uh, you know, particularly women that have never played before, uh, come to the golf course and don't know what to do, don't, don't know how what the protocols are. And I don't mean necessarily all the rules and regulations, but they don't know a lot of things. I mean, they, they don't know because they've never played before. So it's a great way to really introduce somebody to the game without having to overwhelm them with a lot of the technical, you know, jargon that eventually they're going to learn as they progress. So I think it's a very interesting program and you're right. I think, you know, trying to sometimes do things over multiple, uh, especially in this day, day and age where everybody's, you know, busy with their work schedules or, or other, uh, you know, activities, um, sometimes you can't commit to those, you know, four or five or six lessons. So you need to kind of do something. And then as they have an interest in developing more, they can always come back and do other things and progress along with you in that. But I think it's a great way to start youngsters um, doing something in, in like that in one day, and you're splitting it up in such a way that it's, you know, they're doing something different. It's not just, like you said, they're, you know, playing the hole and then doing something else. They're doing multiple different things and having fun at it and taking an interest, and before you know it, that six hours zips by, right? It is, but this program I just mentioned is adults. It's an adult program. So oh, okay. uh, that's my that's my program for women, and typically it works best with women. I did try some for couples, but they don't really take off quite as well. Um, but this is a definite adult women's program. I've had like maybe a high schooler join her mom, um, 
but it, it's really for adults. And honestly, the ages I usually see are maybe 30s, 40s, but a lot of 50s, 60s, okay. 70s in the program. So it's um, it's it's a really been a really really nice program. Very good. Um, now you also do women's retreats. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, we just started those this year at Pinehurst. So at the academy, um, headed by Eric Oppenfell. Uh, we have a great team with uh, Jeff, Paul, Kelly, and then a lot of support staff from the Learning Center as well with Ryan and Brian. And so a really great team there that put on weekday schools. It's a three-and-a-half-day school with instruction, um, and then the weekend school. And so I took the weekend school, which uh, is a two two-and-a-half-day program. Uh, basically, you're there for three nights, um, four if you want to stay extra. And I took that curricula and tweaked it for women. And it is so cool. Um, we're going to be doing one. Actually, I start one tomorrow. We have uh, five. We, we max it at eight. I have five people coming in, and I have another instructor. But um, basically, it's like a little mini boot camp. And at the resort, it's it's a lot of fun. You, know, you come in, and um, I actually created a scavenger hunt. So when you come in the first night, um, I meet you on the first morning, but come in the night before, and you get this very cool scavenger hunt. I went all around Pinehurst and, uh, you know, went to some pubs and went to their hotel and went on to the course and and uh, it's just a really fun way for people to get to learn a little bit about the resort. We go over the, an- the answers at the end. So that's fun. And then when they check in, they do a nine-hole self-putting contest at This Will Do. And I'll have a prize uh, for uh, the winner on, on our first lunch. And then uh, each morning we do a lot of skill work. We go over putting and chipping and pitching, bunkers, full swing with video, some track man numbers, um, and that's every morning of the three mornings. And I, am, I also do a presentation on pre-shot and post-shot routine, which was my mm-hmm. bread and butter at um, UT Knoxville for my sports psychology master's degree. And that's fun. Uh, we also do the mental golf profile uh, that Bobby Foster runs. And, and that is really neat to learn about your personality, but written in golf lingo. Love doing it. Pia and mm-hmm. Lynn do it a lot as well at Vision 54. Right. Um, what else? We've built in a massage. So, of course, they have to hit the spa at some point. They get a massage built into that. <laughs> uh, we go play the cradle. Uh, so we have an event out on the cradle. We actually have another event one day on the course, on-course instruction. And then they can go continue to play. There's lunch every day. Um, it's just it's just so much fun. Just do a lot of different things. And, the, and our first evenings now, we've gravitated over to the tavern at the Holly Inn for our, like, little half-hour cocktail reception the first night. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It, wow. it moves quickly, and it's, it's really a great little boot camp. I think that's fantastic. And, and you know, it, it goes back to really what you said a little while ago is uh, about sort of putting fun into the game. Because as, as we both know, golf is extreme, can be extremely challenging. Um, you know, Cindy and I, uh, of course, I'm talking about Cindy Miller, uh, host another program called the Women of Golf on Tuesday mornings on the same network. And one of the interesting things that we've had the pleasure of doing over the last several years, now the Epson Tour, but primarily before was the Symmetra, is we got to speak with a lot of the players, especially the winners off of each event um, for each season for the last several years. And what was always interesting as we started talking with especially some of the rookies and some of the first-time winners is they got so sort of hot and heavy into practice and all of this stuff and, you know, just really grinding it out there that there came a point in time that they really forgot to have fun and just, you know, get out there and just enjoy themselves. 
And I've said this many times on air, what was really interesting is we had a group of them one season, I think about two, maybe three seasons ago. Yeah, it was prior, prior to the pandemic, so I think it was like 2018, 2019. And um, we had about five of them in a row that had never won before, and this was their first win. And every one of them, I kid you not, said the same thing. We were to the point where we were our breaking point. We had enough, and you know, we're just thinking of quitting and this, that, and the other. And we just said, you know, the heck with this. We're just going to go out and have a good time and have fun and not let the anxieties that typically creep in out on tour. And they won the, the very next event. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting that you, you know, you talk about these retreats, these women's retreats, because I know from talking to you know, women that have never played the game before, there's a lot of anxiety coming in because they don't want to look bad. And you know some of the things you've heard them say to you, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to look foolish out there. I don't want to do that. Right. So what you've done with these programs is to create an environment that's very comforting. You're, you're obviously teaching them about the game, but you're throwing a lot of other stuff to sort of not make it all just about golf, Correct. Correct, and I want them to have, uh, you know, out of the drills that they get, maybe if they get four or five different drills, one or two of them are really going to speak to them. So try to match it up with mm-hmm. visual or kinesthetic or whatever that works for them. And, um, you know, people of all different handicap abilities and, and levels of play, we don't recommend it for pure beginners because it's not like here's how you hold a club, here's how you stand. That's, it's going to be a little bit more for people who have – really dabbled in the game and are out playing um, to improve on that. But uh, I, I definitely think, you know, and, and sometimes the word fun, I think, gets overused. It might be more like I want to see right. you really engaged. I want you to be engaged, right. almost like watching a kid play, and they get so lost in their play. They're there for 25 minutes, just totally absorbed, <laughs> enjoyably absorbed. Mm-hmm. I think those are two good words. I want you to get enjoyably absorbed in what you're doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and yeah, you have to you have to enjoy. And and I think you know, especially for amateur golfers, you know, it, it it's a process. It's not going to happen overnight. Some people obviously uh, maybe have a little uh, are a little more gifted and might pick up the game a little easier than some, and that's great. Um, others might need a little bit more more prodding, a little more work to to fine tune things. But you know, ultimately, you want them to be engaged and you want them to be excited about the process. So. Now, this, this isn't the first season that you've been doing it, correct? Or is it? It is, actually. Yes, it is. So we're, uh, this is our first season that we're uh, putting. We have 16 of them planned for the year. So the women's retreats are brand wow. new. Wow, very good. Um, so what are some other things that you're also doing? I mean, obviously, you're doing the, the other programs, too. What are some other things that you're doing at Pinehurst now? Oh, good question. So I do have an, a surprise announcement coming up. I can't tell you yet, though, but there's going to be some really interesting <laughs> things going down for me this year and with some opportunity to see people around the country. That's going to be on a limited basis. But when, uh, when I get a chance to tell you that, when I will. But in the meantime, at Pinehurst, um, at the Academy, it's been really fun being able to work in some pre-shot, post-shot routines. So I've been coming up with a really fun little program there. I keep using that word fun, but it is engaging. Um, to talk a lot about uh, pre-shot, post-shot, and Eric Oppenfell has done a ton of research with Dr. Bob Christina and, you know, working on the transfer portion and how you practice effectively. He has a very good presentation at the Academy. So the pre-shot, post-shot one has been very neat, Um, you know, talking to people about pre-shot, getting their ideas of what it is, and I think people have been really engaged. They have had some really good feedback on, on that. It's the mental game, but also the emotional game. So 
um, you know, a physical, mental, and emotional aspect to a pre-shot routine. And then we talk about what are some keys to good pre-shots. Um, we talk about the timing of pre-shots. That was a big thing in my pre-shot um, thesis. Kind of interesting that people who are top of the money list, um, they will vary by less than a second on their pre-shots. And people who are at the end of the money list that week can vary by over five seconds. So that was an interesting stat that I discovered. Um, but we talk about timing, and then we talk about post-shot routine, which most people don't have one. Or they, you know, we see the eyeball rolls and the, the shoulder slumps, and then sometimes we see fist pumps or people jumping. So right. we talk about that, and we mix in um, Dr. Jill, um, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I love her stuff. Um, have you ever heard of her? I'm not familiar with her, but I'll, I'm going to research her when we get off the off the show. Yeah, yeah. We talk a little bit about how you have a 90 second hormone wash that goes through you, and after that, it is all on you as to how you decide to continue. But she did the first ever um, viral TED Talk in 2008. It was amazing watching watching her information as she went through a stroke, and her whole left side just went down on her brain, which was very amazing. I so, know who you're. Yeah, I know who you're talking about now. Yeah, yep, I know who you're talking yep, about so. now. Um, so, so let's talk about that a little bit um, about the pre and, and post shot routines because that, you're right. That is an area that a lot of players, uh, and again, we're talking about amateur golfers, really struggle with. Um, and, and obviously, it, everybody's different. Everybody's going to have their own, uh, you know, pre shot, for instance, routine. But we see so many inconsistencies. Um, we'll see them, you know, and, and I know you were listening a little bit to the to the program earlier, mm-hmm. and we we Clinton, we touched on that, and yeah, and and one of the things that you know I really notice uh, as an instructor when I see people out there is there is a lot of variance. Um, you know, when they're playing well, they tend to stick to whatever their routine might be. When they're not playing well, it's you know it's out with the bathwater. Um, so what? Do, how do you when you're working with your students? and you're trying to help them develop, a, and we'll start with the pre-shot routine, then we'll talk a little bit more about the post-shot. What do you do? I mean, obviously, again, they're all going to be a little bit different, but what do you try to encourage them? What do you say? What's the conversation when you're helping them build a pre-shot routine for them? Yeah, I think sometimes pre-shot routine comes across as a very, not dry, but like uh, it intimidates people, you know. Um, it sounds very technical. Hence, a routine is a routine, right? Hence the word routine. Mm-hmm. So we talk a little bit about what are the things that are going to help you um, to, you know, effectively get your, your shot out there. What are the things that help you for success? So I tend to use a lot of Vision 54. I love Pia and Lynn's Think Box and Play Box and then their memory mm-hmm. box for the post shot. Um, but I actually have students fill out a, um, a little routine. I show them a sample of mine. And on the left side is what I can see people do. So you, you would see what I do. And on the right side corresponding are the mental and the emotional parts that I can't see you doing. So people actually have to write down what they think a routine is for their driver or putter or, or chipping club. And then um, that's something that to base off of, you know because I have different mm-hmm. routines for being in pitching versus putting versus full swing. So, um, you know, if, if I see somebody's having trouble with aim, then we might need to talk about adding an intermediate target, whether it's distal or proximal, you know, close or far. Um, if, you know, they don't have a routine because they, on the mental golf profile, tested more as an eye, an inspirational person who needs more focus that way, then we'll talk about mm-hmm. something basic. I think some people get very, they're like, oh, you have to do this, this, and this. And you'll see sometimes like a five- or six-year-old 
in the world championship looking like a robot because they were told they need mm-hmm. to have an exact pre-shot routine and it doesn't doesn't flow yet. It looks like something they have to do. So it needs to have right. things that are important. In Tennessee, I worked with a player yeah. who played in her first stadium and we cut out like four to five seconds of her routine and then she got a lot better. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the play box and you either have three, six or nine second test intervals because that's the effective time and you could just see him hovering and hovering and going through his checklist. And I said, next five shots, you have three seconds when you get up there to go hit your ball. And when he came back after the round, he goes, gosh, that is so much better. So I'm really interested in the timing of things. I like to have people have their routines timed by their buddies, not knowing when they get time. Just, you know, go time me on five routines today. Here's when you start and stop and let me know, you know, what it is. And then we can see patterns like, wow, when you're longer, no bueno, right? And when you're shorter, maybe not mm-hmm. good. So I think that's fun to do those experiments. No, I think it's I think it's great to to um, have them engaged like that. What I want to ask you as a follow-up is when you're talking with a player or you're talking with one of your students and they've indicated to you that, okay, well, you know, we've worked out this this pre-shot routine. I've been using it now for a few weeks. And I find that when I get in a situation where, for lack of better words, the wheels fall off the bus, I fall Mm -hmm. out of my pre-shot routine. How do you get them or what do you say to them that they can then in turn say to themselves? So when they find themselves in that position, so let's say they, you know, the first three holes in the, in the you know, round, uh, they're doing pretty good, so the routine's consistent, you know, maybe a couple of seconds different, but it's pretty consistent for an amateur. But then all of a sudden, you know, the next couple of holes are pretty bad, and suddenly now, you know, this routine's this long, that one's that long, and it's just back and forth, and there's no consistency. What can they do? What do you say to them? What's the conversation at that point? to get them to say to themselves or what do they need to do to get themselves back on track? So, I mean, that's a good question because that people will get focused on the results and they will lose sight of the process and they will maybe get, you know, they're like, let me just go through this. I just want to hit the ball. And so um, I think it's important to know you have to pay attention to your intention and the focus gets lost. So we have to we have to say what what is it that we want to accomplish here? What's my job? That's some of my favorite questions. What's my job, or at best, what's going to happen here? So I think that's super important to bring a person back to their focus, and then be able mm-hmm. to um, get them on track with what they're doing. So we do that, um, you know, and kind of call the shot, call what's about to happen as we go through that routine. I think um, front-loading is super important, Ted. Um, Front-loading is where you take the emotion that you want and you put it in Mm -hmm. before the shot, and you don't inherit the emotion into a shot. Uh, A lot of people don't spend enough time on the emotional aspect. And to me, the emotion is what kicks off the mental, and then the mental is what kicks off the physical. So I did a lot of training with Tim Creamer, and he has a really cool – uh, program coming out now called Golf Mind, uh, Mind Golf Now, and I can't wait to start it. I have not had a chance to check it out. But I, I just have yeah. people tap into where they are emotionally. I think that is super important. My last shift before a shot is I, I stand up there and I go, oh, all right, I'm all done. I can't wait to. And then I finish that sentence, right. brush the grass, stay balanced, or I hit it to, at the flag. Um, versus, oh, gosh, I hope I don't dump it into the bunker. Or people are watching me. I hope I don't mess up. <laughs> 
So to me, it's about getting the emotions back on track. What do you want to feel in a shot? You have a choice. You know, what do you want to feel into a shot? You can own yourself. We're adults. We can decide how we want to feel, and you can learn to manage that. And then we just go through that basic routine again. You know, it's funny. Uh, I know Tim very, very well. He's uh, become a, a good friend of mine, and he's uh, regular. In fact, he um, was uh, originally supposed to be booked tonight on Coach's Corner, but unfortunately had to back out. But, um, yeah, he, he's a great uh, mind coach and has a lot of uh, great programs. And, you know, we've had similar conversations, he and I, about some of the things that we're talking about right now. Um, I want to... Um, move on to the post shot because you said this is something that a lot of um, a lot of golfers don't even have in their wheelhouse, don't even think about. Um, talk about that. What what's important in a post shot routine that people need to know? I'm not sure, Nicole, but I think I lost you. I don't know oh, if you there can you still go. hear me. But yeah. I think, okay, there so. we go. I think, <laughs> think the mute button got hit. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so no, I think, okay. yeah, the post-shot routine, post-shot routine yes. would be um, how a person decides to store their memory. And, it, you know, right after a shot, I think people are very conditioned to have such like the shoulder slump or the sigh or – that they let that emotion just jump in because it's so conditioned. I think people get very judgmental. And one of the big things I say is after a shot, you know, we want to evaluate and assess what happened, not judge. We get so judgy. That was awful. That was terrible. And I hear this with kids a lot. That was so awful. And I'm like, that wasn't awful. It was short. It was long. It was left. So the feedback that we give ourselves is very, um, very critical. I ask adults often, I'm like, what do you think you say to yourself when you don't do well? And then some of them chuckle. And then I say, would you say that to a five-year-old? And they go, oh, no. You know, and I'm like, well, why do we do that to ourselves? <laughs> so we, we right. really get on ourselves and we judge. And I think it's important to step back and be very um, uh, neutral, right, or positive. Those are the two effective ways to store a memory. And so I love working with P.N. Lynn's uh, memory box cards. We'll have cards on the ground and Mm -hmm. somebody picks one up and they have to um, do that right after the shot. So it's almost a way to distract them until they can manage themselves after a shot. So, And I don't want a person to be a robot, but they have to find what works best for them, right? So be aware of where you tend to go after a shot and then, you know, do you want to change that or is there a different way to react? So. I think that's a, some great advice. Um, so the last thing before we uh, get ready to close out here, uh, it's hard to believe that time's zipping by. Uh, I'm going to be actually coming to Pinehurst on the 7th to the 10th. I'm going to be staying there for a few days and playing some golf. So I'm going to ask you for some advice. What would, would you recommend? I'm going to be uh, starting out on the Saturday. I'm going to be uh, on the cradle for a little bit, and then I'm going to oh, hit good. number two the next day. Yeah, number two the next day, number four, and then I believe the last day, um, it's either number seven or number nine. I can't remember. I have to look at my itinerary. But what advice would you give uh, for somebody coming up to Pinehurst? 
Oh, my gosh. First of all, I just have the best time. Um, cradle, definitely. Um, that'll take 45 minutes to play-ish, anywhere from 35 to 125 yards, nine holes. Really great place to work on short game and have a, a super time around the, the course there. Um, putt this will do. Make sure you get to the this will do big, massive putting green behind the, uh, the golf shop because those will give you a little little bit of a test on some of the slopes and the speed. It's it's tricked up, but some of it's really fun to putt. Um, it's a really good way mm-hmm. to get, get used to the speeds. Uh, playing here in Pinehurst, you want to do a lot of chip and runs, bump and runs. Martin Keimer used a lot of putters and a lot of hybrids. He didn't use a, a sand wedge to, to chip it up onto number two greens. Uh, the grass is so tight, and it's into the grain. So a lot of run mm-hmm. shots. Um, definitely get those low lofted clubs and putters and use them up onto the green. Um, but I think eight is doing a little closing for renovation. So if you get a chance to get on right. that before it closes, it's, it's right around the time now. It's going to be awesome when they reopen. But, um, yeah, the, a lot of hills, a lot of swales. Um, aim for the green part of the green, maybe not where the flag is, so you can at least get on and, and make the putt. So I think that uh, those, those are going to be some really good good starting points. Very good. Well, I will take that advice to heart, and uh, I will uh, I'll let I'll give you a post assessment when I come home if I if I still have my golf clubs. Um, Sounds good. Well, Nicole, I got to hopefully see you there. I will I will make a point of of, uh, of reaching out when I when I get up there. I'm actually uh, going to be there on the seventh, and then I leave on the tenth. So I'm just there for a the few days. Uh, Okay. Uh, to play some golf and and uh, but I will make a point. Uh, I've, I've got my tee times are all in the morning, so I'm, uh, I'm I'm lucky. So, but yeah, so I will try to make a point of uh, of reaching out. But um, so, any closing thoughts that you want to share? I know you've got some news that you're going to share at a later point uh, with everybody, but um, and aren't going to be able to do that tonight. Then we look forward to hearing mm-hmm. that news. Um, but any final thoughts that you want to share with the audience, and also let the folks know if they want to reach out. Um, give them your website and all of that good information, how they can get in touch with you. Sure, definitely. Well, I, I, I am on Facebook under Nicole Weller, and I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I haven't done a whole lot with Twitter lately, so those will be some areas. I have uh, some YouTube videos. Those are great to, to catch up on. Um, and my website is NicoleWeller.com, so any announcements coming up will be on there as well. Um, and also some fun things to get their books or products or tips or a lot of my articles are on there as well. So hopefully that's a good uh, treasure trove of, of resources for people. Um, as far as reaching out to me, uh, I can reach me at Pinehurst. Um, love to see you there or, or hear, hear from you there if you're in the area. Um, and as far as kind of some good wrap-ups, I would make this a year of kind of getting to explore how you practice, how you warm up. Warm up is different than practice and how you get ready to play, Um, but use a good mix of blocked practice, maybe for 15 minutes, and then don't forget to scrimmage and transfer the practice. So if you are hitting drivers for 15 minutes on working on one thing, then the last five minutes uh, I want you to play nine different fairways that you create on the driving range. You get a point every time you hit the fairway. So how many points can you get out of nine different fairways? So um, no mulligans and no same targets in a row. If you hit two balls in a row, on the golf course, that means you've dumped the first one in the water or OB. And so I don't want two shots in a row on the range when you're doing some kind of a scrimmage. So, Some, some good advice. Um, Nicole, I know you've written a number of books, including uh, uh, the one that you mentioned earlier. 
mm-hmm. um, big thoughts from little golfers. If people are interested in your uh, getting copies of your books, uh, where's the best case place to go on your website? Yeah, I have a couple different places. So um, the second edition of my Let's Play Golf Stick to Sports book for kids ages three through eight is on Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can go to my website. It, it, it links you into all the places. Uh, my second edition does not have stickers. Uh, my first edition of Let's Play Golf is still available. I have about 700 copies left, and they're at Pinehurst Resort and also at a store called Bump and Baby in the village here uh, at Pinehurst. But all of that, all of those links are on my website. Um, the cards are at the resort. The cards are also at Bump and Baby, the flash cards for kids ages 2 to 6. And then my new book, Big Thoughts, is, um, again, all the links are there, but uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, you name it. Perfect. Well, Nicole, it's always a pleasure. Uh, You've always got some interesting things to share and uh, much continued success. And I will, as I said, when I get up to Pinehurst, I'll make a point uh, of saying hello to you and, of course, Ty, uh, your husband. And... um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take your advice to heart and uh, and practice my bump and runs the next week before I get up there and definitely. and get working on my game <laughs> and my putting awesome. as well. well but I'm, I'm definitely gonna yeah. I, I I definitely will. I'll make a point of it. Uh, but Nicole, thank you very much for joining me as always on Golf Talk Live. And you always have an open door policy here. I love uh, what you're doing. I think you're doing a fantastic job in in all areas of the game, and you you really do. Uh, keep people engaged and, and of course, have fun. So that's really what it's all about. But, Nicole, thank you very much, and have a great weekend, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Ted, and I look forward to our annual visit next year, but hopefully I will cross paths soon. So thank you so much. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks, Nicole. Bye-bye. All right, that was Nicole Weller, uh, PGA and LPJ Teaching and Club Professional. Uh, You'll find her at uh, Pinehurst. And the uh, best way to reach out to her is go to her website. It's NicoleWeller.com, uh, and all of her information is there, her contact information, and uh, a lot of the products, the books, and so forth that she has put out. And you can learn about uh, her as well. And also there's a great, if you go under the About tab at the very bottom, uh, you'll see what people are saying uh, about Nicole, and there's a lot of very heartfelt notes uh, from both uh, youngsters and adults. Uh, she's a great... Uh, Great asset to the game, and um, we wish her much continued success, and I thank her for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. Also, a special thanks to the guys, John and Clint. Thanks, guys, for doing a great job on the earlier part on Coach's Corner, and I look forward to having you guys uh, back here real soon. Um, I will be back here next Thursday with another Coach's Corner panel and another insightful guest interview. I hope you'll join me. God bless everybody, and have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.